My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the product, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits, and we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. Hamish Telfer, friend of mine of long standing. Welcome, Hamish, from the, the wilds of... Uh, Northern Scotland. Thank you. First thing, Hamish, is to go back to your early days and how you came into athletics, what athletics was like when you arrived in it, and your experience of being coached in it. Well, I came in accidentally, like I guess a lot of people uh, do come into sports. Uh, I discovered I could run at primary school, got to secondary school, and a friend invited me down to the local Harriers Club. There was a, an older guy there called... Uh, John Todd. I was a member of West of Scotland Harriers, which at that time was the third oldest club in Scotland. Bit of a push to describe him as a coach, uh, but he was very much a trainer of, of the old type of school. Yeah. I really didn't get that much advice other than when I was running cross country. Johnny Todd would sort of give his rough advice about not going off like hairy bears and you know that sort of thing, keeping a bit of reserve. It wasn't until John Anderson picked me up as a, as a schoolboy athlete in the mid-60s, along with Cameron McNeish. I trained with Cameron McNeish. But Cameron was a bit went on to become an international long jumper for Scotland. So that was really where I got my first coaching as a 15-year-old. What was the service provided at the time, not just to you, but to others at West of Scotland? What was it like? And how would you compare it with the present? It was very welcoming. We were always made to feel very much part of a club without really knowing what the club was. We had one base in the winter at a place called Stanelaine in the south side of Glasgow. It doesn't exist anymore. I think they've built houses on it now. But that's where we used to run cross country. It was one tepid shower for about a dozen people. And it became a sort of melting pot for older athletes, some very great names, uh, John Emmett Farrell, Gordon Porteous, I mean, Emmett Farrell was a big, big name in, in those days. They would come and, and they would they would run with us as kids. Yeah. And, and we sort of learned on the job. It was very much a family atmosphere, but it was then, even then, a relatively small club. But technically, no input. While I ran cross-country in the winter, I was supposedly a sprinter long jumper in the summer. I mean, I could barely get off the ground as a long jumper, but, you know, that, that was what I did. What was the composition of the club? It was a male club, I assume. Yeah. And uh, what was the what was the age range covered? Was were there any kids under fifteen? There there were under fifteens, not many. I would have said there would be from thirteen upwards. Um, the club membership, I had a wee look there, never really numbered much more than thirty or forty in those days, and it spanned from thirteen right up to seniors. And we had some good seniors. Uh, Donnie Davis as a sprinter, and Ian Walker, who was an international 400-meter runner. Uh, Ian's still around. He's, um, so we, we had a bit of a spread. You're describing a very limited opportunity to be taught or to be coached and to compete with a very small number of people. Yeah, interesting point, Tom. I mean, the other clubs, by and large, were bigger. I mean, Bella Houston Harriers, Shettleson Harriers, they, they were the bigger clubs in Glasgow. But what, what happened to Cameron and myself was that we went to weekend 
coaching sessions, uh, usually held on a Sunday. And that was where we met other coaches. Uh, and they taught us, in a sense. And there was never any sense of poaching or stealing athletes or anything like that. We just went along and we got coached and they helped. And our own coach, trainer, inverted commas, never had any problems with that. How did you make contact with John and how did that relationship develop? John was very canny. He was interested in Cameron. Cameron was clearly a talent. Because we trained together, he felt, and he's told me this subsequently, that he didn't want to split up that sort of friend relationship and training partner relationship. So I was invited into John's own personal squad, along with Cameron. Um, I, I would probably suggest to you, Tom, I was probably no more than a good quality club athlete. Uh, and, and even the word good probably would be gilding the lily a little bit. But John recognized that if you took me away from Cameron, that might be to the detriment of Cameron. So John invested in me a considerable amount of time in my own right. I have no complaints about the coaching I got from John. So what did you get down to in 400? Oh, I got down to 55, nine indoors as a 16-year-old, which was Cosford, it was boards. Um, and at that time was, was relatively respectable. Uh, by then, I'd, I kept coming last in 100 metres. The penny eventually dropped, but maybe 100 metres wasn't it for me or 100 yards in those days. So, But I became a passable finalist, Scottish finalist in 400 and 440 yards. And then eventually, when I went to PE college, I got a bad accident, and that was my athletics career finished. Cameron had left the sport by and large as well. As, well, So, so you know, that, that sort of broke up. So what was your memory of that short period you had, or that period that you had with, with John Anderson? Because that was the beginning of his coaching career too. Yes, it was. John, John was really interesting. He was very much a father figure to Cameron and I. Bearing in mind, we were only 15, 16 years of age. But we acted as his demonstrators when he was on coaching courses. So when John would go around the country, down to Ayr and various places around the sort of central belt of Scotland, mainly the central belt, during the middle of the week, I have to say as well, he would take us and we were his demonstrators. And John had a fundamental philosophy that at that age, we learned every event. Yeah. I have to say my high jump is higher than my pole ball, but, uh, you know, we, we learned all events. Technically, I'm quite a good shot putter to look at. I can only putt about eight feet, but I'm quite good to look at. Uh, John taught me the technique. That, that That's very really interesting. That I mean, John is a unique coach in the sense that no one has coached as many international athletes as John, and in such a wide range of events, from marathon to yes. decathlon. Yes. Well, I, I was a little bit of a guinea pig as well. I discovered much later that I was actually a bit of a guinea pig for Sheila Carey, who he coached, because I was yeah. doing prodigious mileage at one point. I did a 1,000 miles in three months um, yeah. as an 18-year-old. I mean, it, it really was quite extraordinary. He wanted to see what he could do with Sheila and just see whether men and women could take that sort of sort of loading at that time. You know, I can remember eating one and a half times what my parents were put together and going through three pairs of training shoes, I have to say. But you ask me what my memory is. Memory is happy, Tom. I, I'd, it was a happy, productive time. And I felt I was achieving something for me in addition to, obviously, my schoolwork at that time as well. I was persuaded, again, later in life by Cameron, 
to do some mountain marathon running with them. Two of us were operating as a two-man team, and we did win a category at one point. But, but I also ran marathons much later in life. I managed to get to just under three hours in a marathon, which was, was good for me. What brought you into coaching? Because I had quite a good range of technical knowledge for a very young person, and was at PE college. I was being trained as a PE teacher. John, at that time, when I was running, had got me running quite a lot with Maryhill Ladies, as was then. So I was a training partner, for example, with Avro Beatty and Pat Pennycook and, and people like that. And so there was a sort of logical gravitation that when I stopped running, Jimmy Campbell of Maryhill Ladies nabbed me and said, look, why don't you come along and coach? And then gradually by then, Frank Dick had started in Scotland. And Frank picked me up as a very young, embryonic coach. And I went through the system. At one point, I was the youngest senior coach in Scotland. At a time when I think the age limit was 23, I think I was 22. And so what year would that be, Hamish? At the age of 22, that would be 1972. Yes. I, I, I was in at that uh, earlier than that uh, with Mary O'Harrias as, as a women's club. Yeah. But this will come to this later. But one of the issues, I think, that that relate to women's athletics at that time was the question of, well, a lack of competition. Yeah. I mean, I, I was working with these girls twice a week at Maryhill, and I thought, well, what, what are we actually preparing for? Yeah. And the answer is virtually nothing but the national championships. By the time I came in, Tom, the Motorway League, which uh, had been formed, which was the precursor to the National League. And so we, we had uh, competitions with Edinburgh. Good. Birchfield, I'm trying to remember, uh, London Olympiads um, and Stretford, I think. So if you think about the embryonic motorways in the 1970s, I sound very much like an old git and, and I apologise for that, but it was really sort of that sort of uh, precursor. Yes, they enjoyed the, each other's company and they enjoyed the physical activity, but outside of the nationals and maybe regional later, there was nothing. Perhaps not nothing, but you're right. It was extremely limited. It was nothing like the male side of things as well. But this is, by the time we got to the early 1970s, things were beginning to move for women's athletics. So I just gravitated naturally into women's athletics and coaching and that. You know, I, I stayed with Mary Hill until I eventually moved jobs in 1975. John, in a sense, laid the groundwork for what eventually Frank took over and developed. And I can remember some really quite innovative sessions uh, by Frank. Uh, I don't usually give Frank kudos, but, but Frank, I mean, I can remember sessions at Bella Houston Sports Centre where there was over 100 men and women yeah. in conditioning sessions in the big hall, all working together, all working with coaches. It, it was really quite something different. And it really was the start of what I would call a bit of an explosion in the, the coaching community and in coming together and learning from each other as well. And Frank was a great one for learning, you know, I mean, so it, it, it was really the start of what I would call, you know, the more modern approach. What is your thoughts on present coach education? It's a complicated question to answer, Tom, in many senses, because I don't think there is one element of coach education that you can say this is really good and that's really not at all good my my gut reaction is to with the caveat of also saying i've got to be careful not to talk about the good old days because i'm yeah. not sure they were ever 
that good. They seem good in hindsight, but I'm not sure they were ever that good. But I do have to say, the lack of visibility in the coaching arena is absolutely dismaying now. You've got to bear in mind, I was one of those coaches that worked for a national coach. So I was a staff coach in the northwest and north of England, and the coaches knew me. I don't think this current system invests that amount of time where coaches know who to go to, know the sorts of questions they should be, they think they should be asking. Uh, and even if they don't know the questions you should be asking, asking the idiot question is still quite good because you're asking a question. And it starts the dialogue because I remember myself and other colleagues, not just not just me, other colleagues who are like me, investing so much time into the system where coaches knew who we were, were able to come to the tracks, talk to us. We were at their tracks talking to them. The other issue, too, is uh, the question of sheer volume of coaches. Yeah. Sport shifts and changes as society shifts and changes, and kids are doing different things in different ways, and therefore the coaching workforce may need to be deployed in different ways as well. It's a complicated picture. Yeah. It's not an easy fix. So in the short term, uh, what would you do to alleviate that position because you're you're not going to suddenly create a whole body of coaches, even with a vast sum of money that don't exist. Well, I would for a starter look at the people we've got. Yeah. And say, right, of whom we have, how best can we service them? And there have been attempts, to be fair, by England Athletics in the past to put in what were called coaching managers. Uh, and these were people who did try to make contact with clubs and coaches you've got to get there there is no question you know so you've got to pitch up at Stretford you've got to pitch up at Lancaster Morecambe and you know Medibank and places like that and say right this is who I am just want to chat to you for 10 minutes you know and make sure you you keep in touch that's the starter for 10 yeah fundamentally we need to look at examples from other sports I think we need to look at our coaching workforce that we've got see where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are. For example, we know in the last six years, we have a decay of 40% of javelin coaches. Mm. There is a statistician who is producing these sorts of figures, you know. So we, we, you know, we need to be wading in, you know. You, you've still got a hole in your shoe, which is leaking water here. So... I think what we need to do is prop up some of those events. Uh, and, of course, we know the effect that a lack of coaches have is that we have then a lack of technical athletes. And if we just look at the events in the last uh, Olympics, Europeans and so on, in the field events, we can see where they're not coming. Uh, and, of course, the big problem, too, surely, is the lower volume we have now of senior yeah. athletes. Uh, I mean, I, I asked that. Uh, um, officially, whose name I will not mention, what he thought the future was in terms of where we would get coaches yeah. in the future. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, quite easy, Tom. I said, yeah, that's good. He said, parents and teachers. Yeah, we may still get parents. Yeah, we may still get a few of them. It's not to say that we won't get teachers, but it will be a, a trickle. We're not going to get teachers in the same way we did before, simply because that whole climate and atmosphere of what teachers did after school and so on and so forth, and the point you made is interesting just a few seconds ago. 
I got sent through the results of the East District Cross Country Championship uh, in Scotland. There were only about three or four senior women in the first 25. The rest were all veteran women. So, so we have a huge gap. And you would expect veteran women to be coming in because one of the good news things is that a lot of women are taking up running because it's a social thing. They join a club and, and so on and so forth. And, and a number of them, you know, will, will run in a competition because they'll do it because a mate's doing it. Uh, one senior athlete I coach, veteran athlete, um, uh, she made the, 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 southern, uh, the southern 200 meter final at the age of 41. Now, hold on. I mean, that, that would never have happened in the past. At junior level age group, you know, sort of 19 to 21 sort of thing. They're counting people who actually compete once or twice. I wouldn't call myself a footballer if I played a game of football once a year. I mean, you go into a gym and lift weights. I'm looking at you, Tom, and you're not a weightlifter. Forgive me for saying it. Twice a season. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I, as soon as this is over, that's where I'll be going. Uh, to the gym, but that that's right. And uh, other sports like weightlifting have not considered the people who join health clubs as weightlifters, or else the figures would be massive. Yeah, yeah. But we are now, to be fair, I think England athletics and UK athletics are now getting a sense of what the playing field looks like and where the tilts and balances are and where the potholes are. And I think they are getting a sense of that. Now, well, what do we do about it? And, and I think in that sense, I think we're all in that boat now because, you know, it, it, it's a complicated picture. It's a complicated problem to solve, but they, they need to start engaging with what they have better. And, de and deploying what we have more effectively. Well, that becomes a complicated problem, I think, mainly for England athletics, because, of course, I think quite rightly, they could get accused of meddling in club affairs if they started to mess around with competition structures and yet competition structures is where they need to start yes. nobody wants to go away for a day anymore and 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 run a hundred yards and a four by one really and maybe a 200 200 you know meter race i've got direct comment on that from from a club in the northwest of england where the women's team were were four women three of whom were veterans and they covered all events how can we make our sport more appealing. Other sports have tried to some extent, but cycling, I know, made a big push on that and was semi-successful. Orienteering has, you know, and, and rugby, volleyball and so on. We've tried. I mean, sports hall athletics is one of our great success stories, you know, and, and I think we should celebrate that. Yeah, but I would say that the answer to that is what I think it's going to be met by England athletics is a, a program which will attempt to put yeah, yeah, some yeah. form of sports or once a month in as many counties as you can. Initially, I think 19, but hopefully it would spread, hopefully, to the 49 over periods. So that, that would provide a competitive structure for them. And when the summer arrives, five-star kind of meetings, where you go there to, you know, to try and see if you can get a three-star instead of a two-star certificate, you're competing against yourself. Yeah. Other sports do, do that as well. And when I was a national coach with another governing body, that was precisely what we did. The steps up the ladder were rewarded. So you had award schemes as well as reward schemes in order to keep young people in the sport and, and to do that as best we could. And I would hope that in a way of moving forward here, that somewhere there's a middle ground 
where we can work with them. We, meaning Joe Ordinary Coach Amish Telford and the hundreds like me around the country, although we're depleting, people like me can work with the governing body better. And But to do that, we need to have an individual who we can contact, who we can see, who we can talk to, and who we can trust. We know the governing bodies are strapped for cash. There's no question. Everybody knows that now. The, the figures are out. We know it. And therefore, it is important for all of us involved in the sport to wade in and work together to try and solve that problem. But allied to that, I've always been a strong admirer of the English school's athletics. Uh, you know, always have and try to support them. Now, it's not perfect. I don't think there's any sporting organisation or that, that is perfect. But, you know, I was always fabulously enthused at what I saw because I thought, here's the next generation. And they were visible, they were there, and, and it was just, it was fantastic. So there are some things about our sport that are there that we could use, that we should use better, that we could put in award, reward systems to keep people in our sport. We've got to do it better than other sports. Yes, I mean, where do you see athletics in schools in a curricular sense? That is what they get as part of the curriculum, not anything to do with after school sport. Well, Tom, you're speaking to somebody who is a university lecturer responsible at one time for equipping primary mm. school teachers with the basic athletics knowledge. When it got down to three hours in the whole of their four years of teacher training, that was it for athletics. At that point, I had to go to my head of department and vice chancellor and say, I'm out because actually I can't do the job and make sure, first of all, the kids are safe, that they're going to be teaching. <laughs> and secondly, that the teachers are safe in terms of being sued, you know, for, for, for bad practice. I need more time to do this job. But also, I think we also need athletic specialists in teacher training edu establishments. But of course, teacher training has changed as well, because you have these consortiums now who train teachers. Now, it's just your luck whether you get into a consortium where there's a good physical education lead. And I speak to my music colleagues as well. They say the same thing. Music is, is down the pecking list. Phys ed's down the pecking list. Art's down the pecking list. Dance and drama. Therein lies another problem because a lot of these facilities are going as well. You know, the fields around the school because schools are expanding. I'm looking at my granddaughter's primary school down in the Cotswolds, for example, and it's interesting because the primary school slap bang up against the, the secondary school and the secondary school and the primary school are building on the site. And of course, as soon as you start to take up the grass, <laughs> that's less grass the kids are out playing on. So this comes back to the question we're all asking ourselves. Where is the dialogue? Where can we get together? Where can we talk about this? Two things running through all of this. One is reality. And second generosity of spirit put those two together and we can we can resolve most of these issues and some of them can be done fairly quickly actually the teaching programs can be changed fairly quickly whereas performance can be changed quickly that takes a while to turn that round yes and and i think this is where tom i have a sympathy with the governing body because to change the competitive structure is really slightly outside their remit but i think they know they have to change it in order for it to becoming more meaningful or it has to change I think this is where the regions and the areas have a role to play. A couple of questions that would dig out a couple of stories. I read um, online just before 
a couple of interesting things. One that you were briefly attached to Queens Park Football Club. For Christ's sake, you never told me this. And another that you did mention changing jobs that you were considering uh, the oh. police <laughs> and may have become a banker. So, can you one. just give us a flavour of your life? You owe me a pint, Alex. You owe me a pint, and let me tell you. <laughs> Cameron went into the police cadets. So I thought the police cadets would be a good idea. So I tried applying for the police cadets. But unfortunately, I'm an absolute, I'm very small. I was going to use another phrase there. <laughs> I'm actually five foot seven. And, and that was one inch lower than you at that time of getting into the Glasgow police. So I stayed on at school, um, applied to PE college to the Scottish school at Jordan Hill and uh, didn't get in first time. So my mother told me, look, Hamish, you're not going to sit around the house. Go and get a proper job. Never mind this teaching PE stuff. Go and get a proper job. So I went into a bank and became a qualified banker, uh, but hated it. And, and I was the worst person ever to deal with the public over the counter. And I kept getting the money wrong. So nothing ever balanced. So in the end, I became a PE teacher. I am lucky in that I found the one thing that I think I am good, potentially some people might say gifted at. I can communicate. I was, a, I was told on an inspection of my university that the inspectors described this, described my teaching as being of excellence. Right? Now, I had no idea that I'm excellent in anything. And, and I'm not being self-effacing. It's just what I did, and it was just how I did it. But gradually, more and more people persuaded me of that. And in fact, when you get athletes... When I was coached to the Great Britain World Student Games cross-country team, the number of letters I got back from students who were themselves Great Britain internationals, full internationals in their own right, who were running for the world students, number of letters I got saying this was the best team experience they'd ever had. Now, Malcolm Brown and myself took the team, and then it was myself and Chris Coleman. It was my hobby as well as my job. Now, how lucky am I in life mm -hmm. to be able to say and do that. And I've had ups and downs in my life as well. And Tom, you know my personal background and bringing up a kid of my own with my first wife dying very young and so on and so forth. So I've been very lucky in that the people I've been with, the jobs that I've done, that I communicate well, apparently. And actually, it's an interesting point. I was asked to do a coaching seminar where I was asked to talk about the coach-athlete relationship. And I said, no, I, I don't know anything about the coach-athlete relationship. Anyway, Cutting a long story short, I took three athletes with me in the car, got to the seminar, spoke for five minutes and said, right, I'm leaving the room. You folk ask the athletes what the relationship was like and the questions. Yeah. They'll tell you whether I was good, bad or indifferent. And I went out the room. Somebody came and got me about 40 minutes later and said, right, you can come back in now. I still to this day have no idea what they said. Other than the people in the audience, there was about 30 in the seminar. Uh, the people in the audience said, well, they seem to think you're, you know, the next thing to yeah. slice bread. Not many people find the talent they have. Uh, I think I did. Uh, and uh, I, I loved what I was doing. I still love coaching. It, it, it just ignites me. Uh, I don't know why. Do you think that in experiencing that um, awful personal tragedy that, that you went through regarding your wife that you just mentioned. Do you think throwing yourself into athletics coaching um, and having it as a, as a hobby provided some 
comfort, some some release of energy that helped you overcome what you had to overcome? No is the answer, Alex, and I'll tell you why. When my wife died in 1991, I was already uh, 41 years of age, right? I'd done a lot of my club coaching, a lot of my athletics coaching. I got my own squad and everything else. That stopped. And it stopped because I had a five-year-old daughter to bring up, you know, and I couldn't go out every Tuesday night, Thursday night, weekends, and so on and so forth. So I left the sport for about a year. And it was Norman Poole who was the catalyst, Diane Madal's old coach, who said to me, as well as Peter Warden and, and people like Tom, there were a lot of people around who said, come on back in. The way in, and I have a lot to thank Malcolm Brown for in this. I don't often thank Malcolm for anything. But Malcolm brought me into the British University setup. And that's where I picked up my coaching career again. But it was with GB World Student Teams. And and mm. and so the, the, although I was coaching, Alex, the, the nature of it was different. So I wasn't coaching my own personal athletes. I was bringing other people's athletes onto a start line in a cross-country race in the right frame of mind to run the race of their lives. That was my job. I take no credit for any of the gold medals we won. We won a lot. We almost cleaned the floor at Limerick. We won every gold medal except one. And I've still never forgiven Paula Radcliffe for turning me down. Had, had, she, had she run that race, we would have won women's gold individual as well. All I did was put them on the start line. And if you ask people like Vicky McPherson, I've still got the letter. I've, I've got letters from the athletes saying, yeah. that's exactly what we wanted of you. I let the coaches into the warm-up areas. I mean, this is almost unheard of, you know. I said, they're your athletes, not mine. You know, you get to grips with them. And, and that was my job. What I did before 91 was, if you like, my own sort of background as a coach. What I did after 91 was much more advisory, much more appointed roles. And that's when I worked with uh, Welsh Hockey and I worked with Wild Water Canoeing as well. Don't ask about Wild Water Canoeing. That was an aberration, I have to say, um, you know, in that one. So uh, thank you for the question. And, and it's a logical question to ask. Thanks for, you for, for explaining that. And what are some of the other athletes that were part of these university teams? And although, as you say, you put them on the start line, although you, maybe you're giving yourself a little bit of a disservice, yeah, what did it mean to kind of work with them, although not Paula Radcliffe, for sure names that we would have heard of that also went on to achieve great things maybe before and after? Yeah, Spencer Duval, Dominic Bannister, Liz Yelling, Andrea Duke. Uh, oh, God, I mean, there's, there's so many. I learned a lot from them. Um, but there was another athlete who presented me with one of my greatest coaching challenges who came to me the night before the Worlds and said, I'm not running. And, and I said, oh, okay, and I won't take you through it. Suffice to say, she ran, she was a counter, and I made her the team captain. Now, you would not think that's an obvious thing to do, but my good friend John Lyle, professor in sports coaching, one of the few that we've got, it's what he calls craft knowledge. You, you work out what needs to be done. You, you, there are some things which come into you by osmosis. You don't know they're there. And there's other things that are quite overt. You do know they're there. And this was just one of those moments where I remember my team manager, Chris, saying to me at the end of the meeting, because we were there for about two to three hours trying to persuade her to run. And he came out and he said, do you realize what you've just done? I said, I know, I know, and I probably won't sleep tonight. And she ran well. Didn't run as well as I thought she could have 
potentially run, but she ran well. So you, you look in those things, and that's why I became so interested and started to publish as an academic in reflective practice, because reflective practice is not one of these woolly phrases. It's about the things called craft knowledge that lay hidden in our practice or lie hidden in our practice that we don't know is there. How do you know what you don't know? Donald Rumsfeld time, there are no unknowns, there are unknown knowns. You've got to know the unknown knowns because that unlocks your practice. And you need to be with people who watch you, will talk to you, will encourage you. Oh, there's a lovely phrase in uh, The King and I, by your pupils you'll be taught. That summarizes to me coaching. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and Alex, that, that, that was what I got from, from these world teams. There were one or two that were a wee bit near the bone in terms of being able to handle a couple of lads, I can remember, in inverted commas, uh, one of whom I think works for the governing body now, so no names, no pack drill. But by and large, I learned from them. And, and that's as it should be, because athletes develop. And, and if I don't develop as a coach alongside their development, how can I help them further in their development? So it's really important. We have two of the best-known coaches of athletics that Scotland has, has produced in, in a room together. At what point do you go back to when you, when you met each other? And I'm sure you will have shared a, a few laughs, possibly a few beers over the years. I met Tom principally as a member of the British Association of National Coaches. So I was a national coach in one governing body, not his, um, and he was a national coach in another. But we knew each other for the simple reason I knew who he was. And John Anderson introduced us and so on and so forth. Right. Tom right. very much mentored me. And I, in addition to Tom, there was John Crook, there was Trevor Clark from hockey, and there was the wonderful Jeff Gleason from judo. Jeff probably taught me more about coaching and handling people than, than anybody else I knew. He was such a lovely, wonderful man. Uh, and I learned so much from Jeff. That is what we need to get back to. There is one rather sad story. A student of mine has been badly injured in a car crash. A student from 20 years ago, one of the student group, has asked me to provide him with a voice tape because he's lying in a coma. And, you know, when students from 20 years ago come back and say, Hamish, you know, do, you know, we remember you. Would you do this for us? That gives me a wee glow, you know. So where are the next generation of coaches doing that for the generation that's bringing them on? That's what I want to know because without that, we're doomed, laddies. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake. I mean, this is Tom and you and me chatting away. We need to talk. The governing body, Alex, have a real difficult task. I would be absolutely the first to recognise that, and so would Tom, because the landscape has changed so much, and we haven't changed with it. He's got a better memory than me, uh, really. I think he gives me much greater credit than I deserve. But no, I, I think what Hamish runs through everything he's said is the need to learn, to, to push into the present uh, using lessons from the past. Yeah, yeah. Right, listen, Tom... Give me a call a wee bit later because the dog has got cross paws. He's, he's waiting to go out for his afternoon walk. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, it's lovely to talk to you. And I would thank both you and Tom for giving me the opportunity. No problem. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. And that high note, on that high note, we're right. we good. 
Cheers. Take care then.